0: Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like where are you from, there was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Fall 1977 Therapy and Glenn King. Medication did not relieve my discontent, so I ran away, but it wasn't a big deal. Yes. Just spending my nights at Jim and Brenda's house, but no one knew where I was. If they were really looking for me, I wasn't that hard to find. I was usually down at the 7 Eleven, skipping school, playing pinball, and waiting for something to happen. Andy and Sue were upset about it, so being the social worker types that they were, they made me go to therapy. It didn't go well. The therapist was a dark-haired, bespeckled man who looked like an unsexy Cat Stevens with a clipboard. He had the vibe of an over-educated know-it-all who didn't know shit about life. I didn't like him, but I did like his office. It was in his house, which was nestled deep in the trees and set off the road, private and quiet. The interior of the home was decorated with expensive fabrics from India, authentic art from Africa, and spun glass trinkets twinkling in the windows. It was the kind of house that I dreamed about, no dust, no clutter and no found furniture i sat in his office annoyed while my real problems were sitting outside in the waiting room sue had abandoned me due to grief i guess and andy was not the person i wanted to be in charge of me the therapist poked and prodded with so many absurd questions that i lost my very limited patience and just like mommy and daddy, blew a fuse. I picked up one of his knickknacks, threw it against the wall, and felt the power as it crinkled, crackled, and broke into tiny little pieces on the floor. Of course I had things to talk about, but not with some strange man. The only person I really wanted to talk to was Lil, but she was tight and would clam up any time I tried to go deep. She wanted to keep it simple, Chris and Lil simple, and that created an unspoken wedge between us. Long and pulled Like the tresses of your hair But I did have someone to talk to. And me knowing him really widened the gap between Chris and Lil. His name was Glenn King. He was a gay guy, gorgeously warm, and a house painter by trade. He didn't fall into the best friend status, but he did become my mentor and confidant. He lived in a beautiful home with his boyfriend, a man several years older than him. And the first time I walked into their house, I breathed a great big sigh of relief. Finally, some class. The simplest things were so tastefully appointed A bowl of fruit, colorful washing sponges next to the sink, and a cabinet full of glasses organized by color and height. The walls were painted with subdued colors that were new to my palette, and there was not one speck of dust anywhere. The clean smell of wealth was alien to me, but I loved it and I never wanted to leave and despite our 10-year age difference, Glenn invited me into his most perfect and picturesque lifestyle. Glenn himself was a vision of beauty with a body that was slender and fit and always aglow with a perpetual tan, brilliantly offset by the white t-shirts and painter's pants he wore for work. His brown hair, worn in the right kind of mullet, was cut more in the style of Rod Stewart than southern redneck, and was highlighted with blonde kisses from the sun, and shh, a little peroxide. A meticulously trimmed mustache framed his beautifully shaped lips, and he wore one gold hoop in the appropriate ear. Lil was too mellow to be adamantly for or against anything, but bigots had raised her, and so she was torn. It wasn't that she hated Glenn, it was more about the changes that I was going through. Not only was her best friend hanging out with homosexuals, but she was also listening to disco music, which was completely taboo in our world of rock and roll we the heads were so anti-disco that we stuck disco sucks bumper stickers on our cars because that's what we were supposed to believe and that was pretty much lil's opinion she did soften up however when gary of all people started listening to midnight star a disco band He'd drive around town blasting them and Pink Floyd out of the humongous speakers that filled the trunk of his hot rod Chevy Impala. And then there was the little matter of her and Gary going together which also put the strain of change on our relationship. Gary became her number one and I was pushed aside, which dug a deep hole into my heart. Chris and Lil had now become Lil and Gary and I was supposed to just deal with it. Well, deal with it, I did. By 15, life had pretty much aged me, so I strolled right into the gay bars with Glenn and all his friends. There were no questions asked other than, how old are you? 18, I would say, and it worked every time. The club discovery, our favorite, was the rebellion that I was looking for. I reveled in the dark dancing, the loud music, the crowded anonymity, and, of course, the freak show. Every queer in town was there, all beautiful and dressed to the nines. My ragamuffin fashion style did not work there, so I bought myself a disco outfit, a pink LeMay ruffled tank top, white hot pants and six inch platform shoes made of cork and leather. When Glenn gave me his nod of approval, I beamed like a proud daughter. Whirling and twirling. I I could smell it before it made its way to me. The small brown bottle of poppers from which I was supposed to take a whiff. It seemed innocuous enough, so I mimicked what everyone else was doing. One little whiff of that nasty chemical and my skull cap almost flew off my head. The whole room seemed to blacken and all noise morphed into one low, sustained buzz. My ears started popping and slowly the lights, the colors and the sounds began to ascend and then peek into the brightest, loudest amplification of their previous selves. There was a blurring around the edges of the dance floor and I realized that my heart was racing faster than the beat of Donna Summer's I Feel Love. Every blood vessel in my body was pulsating to the surface of my skin and I tried my best to curtail the headache that I knew was coming. I had to dance slower than the beat just to balance out the frenzied scurry of my vascular system and the pounding in my head. Those two minutes of a blurred and chaotic perception, or however long it lasted, were not for me. They detracted instead of enhanced, and I enjoyed the poppers just about as much as I enjoyed the epilepsy pills, which is to say, not at all. Winter, 1977, Sue B. from Boston. It was on the waning end of a night like this that I met Sue B. from Boston. I crawled up the steep, concrete steps that led to the black hole of the Heartbreak Hotel. And sitting all by herself at the kitchen table was some lady that I had never seen before. She looked like an Amazon woman, tall and thick, not fat, just thick. She had long, reddish-brown hair and round, wire-rimmed glasses. There was something very intense about her, but that didn't bother me because I was in the bubbly afterglow of disco dancing and the effervescent gaze, and there was only one thing on my mind, donuts. With absolutely no introduction other than a drunken grin and a hello, I asked this strange lady if she would take me to Dunkin' Donuts. She said, sure. And with that, we drove around the sleeping wasteland of Little Rock, looking for that greasy oasis of pink and orange. I could have sworn I'd seen one somewhere, but no, it must have been in some other city, in some other state. There weren't any Dunkin' Donuts in Little Rock, only Shipley Donuts, and they closed early like every other damn place in this town. Sue B. was a Vista worker from Boston, and she had come to Little Rock to do some interning at Acorn. Andy would be her boss, and she would be our new roommate. She won me over by her readiness to book around town with a complete stranger in the wee hours of the morning, and I also liked that she was from Boston. It struck a chord in me because I remembered there was something special about that place. It was the beautiful city where I had seen Godspell, and I knew it was a real city, one that probably had a 24-hour Dunkin' Donuts. It was then, in the sizzling afterglow of my frying brain cells, that the seeds of a new dream were sprung. Boston. My clubbing nights had turned me truant, and Andy didn't want me floundering around, so he gave me a job at Acorn. I was to assist the office manager, and the first few weeks were pretty exciting. I made mimeograph copies on the copy machine, Goldenrod being the favorite color choice of Acorn. I learned the word collate and spent many hours doing that and stapling. But when the excitement of collating wore off, the days became too long and too quiet. And by mid to late afternoon, I would fall asleep on top of a box of goldenrod paper. I liked the calm of the environment, but the calm became a comatose and I had to get another job or go insane. 1978. The Heartbreak Hotel did not take a final curtain call. It just ended. Everyone unceremoniously moved out. The nine-bedroom house became a women's shelter for the victims of domestic abuse. I had nothing to do with that decision. But I thought it was a good one. I was still the legal owner but that was neither here nor there. It was a fact that remained relevant only on paper. I moved in with Andy which was strange no matter how you tried to justify it. We had never been close and we had never bonded. Being an emancipated minor, I guess I could have lived out on my own but that was probably too weird for anyone to deal with. So instead, yet another man for whom my feelings were nothing more than ambivalent was sheltering me. But I guess I was lucky. Andy bought a house in Stiff Station, and we moved in with his one piece of art that he really loved. It was a portrait of an excruciatingly old lady with a real fur stole attached to her neck. It was creepy beyond belief, and I tried to convince Andy to take it down because the old lady's eyes followed you and it made you feel haunted or cursed and definitely watched. But Andy loved her, it must have been his grandma, and so she stayed, hanging on the wall, annoying the hell out of me, and giving me some unclear insight into this strange, yet dutiful, man. Acorn didn't want to pay me to sleep, so I quit. Andy insisted that I get a new job to keep me off the streets when I wasn't in school, which was most of the time. I had dreamed of being a waitress when I was a kid, back on the bogs in Massachusetts. So I went down to the Sambo's restaurant and filled out an application there. They hired me to work four hours only in the afternoon because I was only 15 and that was the law. The manager was a very nice man who taught me all the tricks of the trade and ingrained in me the old restaurant adage, clean as you go, words that seemed to resonate with me on so many levels. I made friends with a cook named Anthony, who wasn't a pimp, but he had a pimp style. He drove around in a caramel-colored Lincoln Continental with Christmas tree air fresheners and two fuzzy dice hanging from the rear view mirror. Even though he was a short man, he sat in the driver's seat leaning way back and tilted toward the passenger side of the car, his eyes barely seeing over the dashboard. When he wasn't in his Sambo's uniform, he wore a pinstriped suit and a wide brimmed hat with a feather. When our shift was over, he would take me cruising through the mostly black MacArthur Park. We'd get stoned and listen to R&B music while Anthony drove slowly along the narrow winding paths. In Arkansas, it was still taboo for blacks and whites to mix, and no one from either race took too kindly to it which is why we were given the dirtiest of looks while slow cruising through the elms, maples, and oaks. Anthony seemed oblivious, but I, being sensitive and stoned, could feel, to the umpteenth degree, the condemnation being directed our way. Every time I looked over at Anthony for confirmation, I just saw a little black dude with a big old hat cruising along and chilling out. It was his nonchalant and A-OK style that gave me the courage to be proud of and to rollick in our friendship. If he was cool with it, then so was I. At Sambo's, I was given a schedule change by a manager who obviously didn't know or care how young I was because he put me on the ever-so-rowdy graveyard shift. This was against the law, but it changed my life completely. Overnight at Sambo's was the most happening and diverse place in Little Rock. All colors of life came out to eat after midnight. Cops, drag queens, third shifters, college kids, drug addicts, club goers, golfers, and insomniacs. My favorite time of night was when the gay bar Discovery let out. They brought the party to Sambo's and I was getting paid to be the belle of the ball. The gay men loved me because I looked like Bernadette Peters, who, like Cher, was one of their icons. They gave me lots of attention by forever commenting on my flawless skin, long eyelashes, dimples, and curly reddish-brown hair. For once in my life, I felt like a superstar, and I would look in the mirror trying to imagine what they saw. When all the party patrons had gone home to sleep it off, the night would end with the crash of a crushing boredom. The joyous sounds of drunken drama and silliness were replaced by the squish-squish of my rubber-soled shoes pacing back and forth on the tiled floor. Towards the end of my shift, the next wave of people would arrive, the early birds on their way to work. They would sit quietly at the counter, sipping coffee and rubbing the sleep out of their eyes, having no clue at all about the insanity they had just missed.